Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day, and this is a podcast about what's in the air and up for discussion at the ninth global Peter Drucker Forum. The forum inspired by the great management thinker, the late Professor Peter Drucker. It takes place in Vienna in November. This year's theme is Growth and Inclusive Prosperity, and with me is one of the forum's main speakers, Charles Handy. He's someone whose life exemplifies one of the ideas he is particularly linked with, the portfolio career. Charles Handy started off as a business person working for a vast oil company. Then he became a professor at a time when business schools, then a largely American phenomenon, were beginning to emerge in Europe. And then he switched careers again, becoming a writer, not just about management, but about the way we live our lives. His books, such as The Empty Raincoat and, most recently, The Second Curve, are brimming with striking metaphor and deep common sense. So, Charles Handy, what do you make of the seeming disrupted world that working people now find themselves in in so many parts of the world? There's a lot going on, isn't there? There's an awful lot. And, yes, it's frightening, but, of course, it's exciting. Which side of that you want to be on depends really on you and your attitude to life. I'm fascinated by the idea there's a sort of line down the the century from the 1900s to the 2000s. It really was as though digital change just came sweeping in with the new millennium, wasn't it? Absolutely. I suppose the first website happened in 1992, I think, but it took a bit of time for people to understand what that meant. And yes, at the millennium, everything changed, not only in in business, but of course 9-11 in America and so on. So suddenly the whole world actually got connected again in a totally different way that it never had before. And an awful lot of capital, an awful lot of capitalism was embedded in the traditional way of doing things, the sort of companies you worked for. Absolutely. But they were called companies, and now they're called corporations. And I think that's a very interesting difference, actually, because companies, they had companions, and you lived together and worked together, and they looked after you. So that when I was in my big oil company... They looked after me and they said to me, you are with us until you're 62 and then you will be continually happy for the rest of your life, which I'm afraid to tell you will only be two months. No, two months and two years, actually, (laughs) because you will die about two years after you left Shell. They actually said that or you imputed that? No, they said that. They said said, the the pension fund is very rich. Your widow will be okay. I paid no attention. I was 21. That was the imprinting thought of the the company. I belonged to Shell, and Shell had different regiments, the Far East Regiment and the South American Regiment and so on. And and you knew people, and they had reunions and all sorts of things. And uh, that's all gone. That's all gone. And you mourn it? I don't, because uh, I found it... Stifling, actually. I remember my wife saying to me when they posted us or wanted to post us to run a little country in West Africa. Liberia, wasn't it? Liberia. And, and she didn't want to go. But furthermore, she said to me, I didn't know I was marrying a man who was content to go where people he didn't know would like him to go to. We'd tell him what to do and assumed that success for him would be climbing their wretched tree. Did you know you were that sort of man? And I I took a step back and I said, oh, um, well, (laughs) I I hope I'm not, actually. And she said, well, it's me or Shell. 
and you decided it was her, and that was the, the second bit of your portfolio career in embryo, beginning. Beginning, yes, absolutely. I left the comfort of a company in order to run my own life as I pleased. Now, more and more of the so-called millennials, people in their 20s and 30s now, are feeling the same way. They will join one of these big corporate entities, which are no longer called companies, to get some experience and to make a little bit of money, but they soon get feeling shut in and controlled, and they want to leave and do something different. So my pattern is being repeated, I think, all along. And now the big corporations are finding it quite difficult to get the kind of talent they want because they didn't want to stay. And they're not thinking in the same sort of... uh stretch of life about themselves and about their employees anymore, are they? Short-termism, this much-criticised thing, is real, isn't it? Absolutely, and and you are a short-term asset, which they want to get the most out of you as possible. And they like to say that they're developing you, but they're not really interested in your long term. They want as much out of you as they can, and they'll work you as hard as they can to get as much out of you as they can. When you left Shell, you eventually, I think it took a bit of time, became part of the London Business School, didn't you? Absolutely. My wife said she always wanted to marry a professor, so I better get on with it. So I went to MIT in America and came back to help start the new London Business School. It was, one of the, it was the first, actually. Inspired by Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the Sloan School. The Sloan School very linked to process. Alfred P. Sloan was the head of uh, General Motors. So this was a place very interested in the, the engineering side of management. But also he started the Sloan Program, which was a sabbatical year program for executives in the mid-30s. And the first and only money he gave outside America was to establish that kind of program in the London Business School, and I came back to run it. And the interesting thing was that this was a nine-month program, full-time. People seconded from their organizations in those days on full salary and had to come and live with their family in London and come to class every day. When I went around trying to sell this program, I had to bear in mind that the longest executive program executive program at that time in England was one day. And I was trying to sell a nine-month program. But the exciting thing about the program, as I took it, was that it was a chance for them to rethink not only the way they did their work, but their lives, actually. And so it was totally focused on who are you going to be and what tools do you need to have in order to be what you want to be in the next 30 years. And they, as executive MBAs or whatever the qualification was at the end, as executives had got hands-on, brains-on work experience. They were bringing some of their company, their corporation, to their experience with you. And, And to themselves and the exchange. Over nine months, they got to know each other very well. And actually, I refused to give them a degree at the end. Because I said, the degree will be what you achieve after this. Sadly, in my view, now they get an MBA. But uh, I didn't want them to feel that that was what counted. What counted was who they would become. When was this? This was in the um, end of the 60s. So management education in Britain, not many people, uh, they were all accountants, weren't they? The people who rose to the top of organisations, they didn't, uh, they left school at 16. They they were not management educated, were they, at all? No, it, it was the route into management, though. I remember comparing, I did a study later on to the British government about management education in different countries. And whereas Japan had 
about 12,000 accountants, and uh, France had 20,000, I think. We had 168,000. 168,000. Of course, most of them weren't practicing accountants. They were managers. Unfortunately, all they had learned was accounting. So we were run by accountants. First it was engineers, then it was army officers, and then it became accountants. And that was accountancy was the business school of the 1960s, 1970s in Britain. Is that part of the the waning of British business or the acceleration of short-termism, of money ideas above everything else? Well, I think so. Of course, it, uh, it was uh, encouraged, you might say, by uh, the move of Milton Friedman and co., who said shareholder value was the thing that really mattered. Making money for the shareholders was the point of doing business, which was quite different from when I went into business. The point when I went into business, like Peter Drucker said, was to find a customer and keep a customer. And then if you made money out of that, great. But it wasn't the purpose. It was a result. And when we turned money into the purpose of a business, everything changed. Add to that the people running the business were accountants. The humanity went out of the window. The company became the corporation. It sort of crept in, but now we don't talk about what company. It's, it's corporations, and corporations are soulless beings, it seems to me. Money-making machines, and you are a money-making asset. And once you're no longer making money, bye-bye, front. And it's lost its humanity. The other change in name that's occurred in your and my working lifetime is, in Britain, the end of the managing director and the rise of the chief executive officer. Extraordinary change, that is. Words are very indicative, aren't they, of change. So company to corporation, managing director to chief executive. It's executing. It's not dreaming. It's not delivering a dream, except in certain places, of course. The small family businesses of Germany, the Mittelstand, their economic strength, they're still there. They don't have shareholders. They have families. They're not quoted in the public. A lot of them are run by engineers. Absolutely, because that's what they do. They make things. In Britain, I'm afraid, we've on the whole stopped making things rather than making numbers. Most people now are making numbers in some way or other. But maybe with uh, your professionalising management, that move, the the rise of the business schools outside America, because they've been going in America for decades, haven't they? Maybe that has something to do with this process. I'm, I'm afraid so. I think they are largely responsible, or at least have helped along this kind of movement, because they have become training institutions rather than educational institutions. They have served their customers, who are actually the corporations, and producing people that the corporations would like to have. And so they have become the slaves of whatever were the fashion in the corporations these days, instead of being what I think they should be, which is educational institutions, forcing people to think, challenge them, and saying, is this the way the world of business ought to be? I want more philosophy there, I want more political theory there, I want all sorts of things, but they they are still number-crunching machines, I'm afraid. Now, you're sounding a bit like a grumpy old man, but you had another career, Portfolio Career 3, and that was writing about it, and you've tried to tackle some of these problems in... Certainly the later books, haven't you? Oh, absolutely, because I'm a terribly pessimistic person about what's happening at the moment, but terribly optimistic about the potential of human beings if they're allowed to be their full selves, actually. And what I don't like about corporate life at the moment is it's not allowing people to be their full selves. And that's why more and more people are trying to carve out a life outside the corporation. But it's jolly difficult, actually, and it's lonely. 
we've got to find a way of somehow working people together back in teams or in small units where everybody can know each other and work together. If you're in a project, it's wonderful while the project lasts. I went to the cinema last night, and uh, one of the interesting things that seemed to me was that the, the technology behind making films is so advanced these days, you can do wonderful things. But when the credits came up, there were as many, many people still using this technology perhaps even more. But the point is they, they, would, they would be very intensely in that kind of project team while they were making it. But at the end of it, they didn't belong anywhere because they were nearly all of them independent people brought together for this particular project. And I often say we all have to live actors' lives these days, you know. But, of course, not everybody goes straight from one project or one theatrical production into another one. That's why people have agents, which is interesting. And now increasingly so-called portfolio workers, as I call them, are beginning to have agents actually help them to find the next project they're in. And while they're on the project, it's great fun, but it's a bit insecure, I really want to see more family businesses, family units making things or providing local services. I really want to go back to small is beautiful stuff, having people working in relatively small units, perhaps linked up through technology with very large units. So I don't quite see why pharmaceutical companies couldn't break themselves down into smaller units which are relatively independent and um, still actually work much better and, and actually provide people with a chance to establish their own personal presence in these organizations rather than just being a, a cog in the wheel. You mention uh, smaller units. One of the worries, I suppose, of inclusive prosperity or the lack of it is this new thing, the rise of the robots, the robots who will, it is predicted, do all sorts of jobs that have been highly paid and highly prized up until now, a whole swathe of jobs that are simply going to disappear like grooms disappeared in the very beginning of the 20th century. Well, I'm much more optimistic than that. Again, going to the, the film that I went to last night, as I say, there were lots more technology there, doing things that people couldn't have done as well themselves, but there are an awful lot more people, also different kinds of people, using that technology to create wonderful new effects. If I go down to have a scan in a local hospital, they've got MRI scanners and things, doing things that nobody could have done before. But if you look on the wall, last time I was there, there was a, they had a whole section with photographs of all the staff involved, and there were about 50 staff servicing this machine. So new jobs spring up to service this new technology and the robots. Yes, you have the robots, but they allow people to do things with the robots that they'd never done before. And that creates new sorts of jobs. Robot drivers, I think driving is the biggest employer in America or something like that. Robot drivers would knock out millions of people from a job that quite a lot of people can do without a lot of training. And how is the robot going to deliver food to me in the first floor of my apartment? It may take it to the door, but have I got to go down? So you think uh, robot driving driverless cars is a bit overstated, do you? Well, they'll have to have a, somebody in the back to take the package to give somebody, and they might as well use them to, or her to, to actually drive the vehicle as well. But probably they won't have much to do about driving because they, it'll do most of it automatically. So they have all their energies left to climb the stairs and deliver the packages. So you need quite a lot of thinking to think what these new jobs are going to be. 
No, no. I mean, because they'll come. I mean, I don't think you can anticipate what they're going to be, but I'm sure they will be there, actually. Because, as I say, the robots will take away all the humdrum stuff and allow you to do very creative things with the robot at your side. Now, exactly what you will do is something that's got to be creative. So we need people who are wonderfully creative in their thinking. I don't think you're going to find them in massive organizations. That's what I'm trying to say. Creativity flourishes with like-minded people working in a hothouse. And that's why I want small organizations, semi-independent, linked into big organizations who can combine them all, but creatively flourishes at ground level, not up there in the top of the organization. Now, you were here at the beginning of uh, business schools in Europe. What about what is needed from education now for this new world? It's something different from what we've had for more than 100 years, isn't it? I'm afraid so, because I don't think we're going to get it. As I once said, there's a lot of learning going on in society, but very little of it is in schools. And it's in the street, and it's all around. When you look at kids, they don't let little tiny kids, they don't learn by being told what to do. They learn by finding it out. And we need much more freedom. Now, here's a wonderful example of technology releasing people from the humdrum of going to classrooms and sitting at a desk and listening to what the teacher has to say. They can learn all they want to learn, on the bus, at home, whatever. And what they need to be doing in the schools is actually putting that into practice on problem-solving with people around them in teams. The only teams you get in schools up to now basically has been in the sports field or on the, on the drama world or in Pepsi in the music. But now the whole of the school could be actually working on creative projects in teams with all the so-called learning that used to go on being done by these computers and iPads and so on. And, and interestingly, where that is happening best is in Africa, where they can't bring people into schools because they're too far away and they no transport and so on. But there's all sorts of projects going on where people are learning on their iPads and they come together once every week or weekend or something and solve problems together. We cannot resist technology. It is so driving and so seductive. And really, our teachers have got to learn new ways very quickly. They no longer can be the person with the fount of all knowledge standing in front of the classroom and telling people what to think. They have got to be much more like art class masters wandering around the project groups trying to solve problems and saying, have you thought of doing this? What about that way? Have you thought of this? Which means they're uh, the coaches rather than experts. Now, that's going to be very difficult for them, but they will have to do it because how ridiculous is it to ask my 10-year-old grandson, who doesn't write handwriting very well but can type very fast, but he has to go into a classroom with a pen which he doesn't use much, an empty piece of paper and write answers to things. Um, he's not allowed to look up anything, which he does all his life. It's ridiculous. Abandon all the aids that modern technology has given to you, and then we will test your memory. Now, what is the point? Memory isn't needed. What is needed is how to use the data, not what it is. And somehow we've got to move away from individuals as storehouses of data into people who actually use them. And this will happen because the technology is so seductive. And so already we are getting some universities saying, yes, they can take their laptops in. Of course they can. Yes, they can take in their iPads and so on. The questions they will be given do not depend on memory. They depend on your ability to be creative who responded into a challenge. And, and that's going to happen. 
And you've got to pack some of these ideas into your uh, summing up. You're the last speaker, I think, at the Drucker well, Forum been, this I've year. I've been asked to, to uh, suggest what the next kind of direction should be for this wonderful Drucker Forum. And I'm sure it's going to be based around humanity. And I'm sure it's going to be how do we redesign organizations so that they actually can exploit the full humanity of the people who work in and around them. And they won't be called corporations anymore. Um, they'll be called companies again. Many thanks, Professor Charles Handy, speaking at the Global Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. I'm Peter Day. This is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts coming up soon.